Today we're going to cover, uh, as you all know, of course, chapter 21 through 27. And in reading uh, these chapters uh, over the past week, which I certainly hope and just know that all of you have done that, uh, you probably say, well, you know, we've covered this. Isn't this sort of repetitious? Well, why should we go over this several times? And as I said in the beginning, and I have to constantly remind you because it's easy to forget, that the prophets did not preach on a daily basis. Uh, they were they preached to the people as God wanted them to. And therefore, there would be long gaps, you might say, between uh, one form of preaching and another. For example, if you recall, back in the first or second uh, week of this course, I mentioned that Isaiah serve God during the reign of four different kings of Judah, beginning with Ahaz, then Jotham, uh, and so forth. Uh, but Jotham wasn't mentioned at all. Jotham served uh, or reigned as king of Judah for eight years, and he's not mentioned at all which implies or means to us that Isaiah wasn't needed and didn't really do anything for at least eight years and probably longer. And so things change, people change, ideas change, and therefore what he's doing is repeating a lot of things to a whole new audience or under different circumstances. <clears throat> but the other little confusing thing is that chapters 13, which we talked about last week, uh, chapters 13 through 27, including those that we'll discuss today, were written really much, much later by second or perhaps someone else uh, long after first Isaiah, and then was inserted back into the writings of Isaiah at a later date. Remember, this was a very common thing within ancient Jewish writings. And remember, Scripture was not written as holy Scripture. It was written as history. And if people who came along later felt that what was written prior to them wasn't accurate or wasn't to their liking, they had no problems in changing it. Well, they weren't con concerned with detailed accuracy like we are in today's histories. If somebody came along <coughs> and said that uh, Abraham Lincoln took a, a plane uh, from Springfield to Washington, uh, well, you know, we'd say, well, that isn't correct. We know that planes didn't exist at the time of Abraham Lincoln, and therefore he couldn't. So that particular 
point of history would be totally eliminated because it was inaccurate. But you see, they didn't have that understanding of history in ancient uh, Jewish writings. And therefore, uh, they would write what they thought was correct or what they wanted the people to hear, whether it was correct or not. And if people didn't like that, later on, they would change it. And so you have these inconsistencies that kind of have to be constantly dealt with. The other thing is, when you were reading these chapters, particularly 21 through 27, uh, did you ask yourself or think, where are the prophecies? Everybody who reads or thinks they are reading or plan to read the prophets are expecting prophecies of something that is going to happen in the future. Right? Wrong? Right? All right. But you got to remember what is the meaning of prophecy. Prophecy is not telling the future. Prophecy comes from a Greek, oh well, actually an ancient Hebrew word which is then translated into Greek, but it means one who speaks for God. And therefore, almost every word Almost, not quite, but almost every word of what you have read in these chapters is a statement of God through the apostles' understanding, or the the prophets' understanding, excuse me. Uh, So, everything, with little exception, in this particular book, is actually something that the prophet has received from God at some point in time and has then repeated it, perhaps more than once, to a variety of people. So we can't think about prophecies as some great revelation that is going to be taking place in the future. Now, one of the things that uh, will happen is in part two of this session. Can I help you? <laughs> in part two of this section, which we will start in January, and it will go up almost to Easter, uh, there will be more foretelling of things that represent or refer to Jesus Christ. But you see, at this time, in the 7th or 8th century B.C., there was no understanding of a Messiah. And therefore, you couldn't have prophecies that refer to a Messiah. You will have prophecies in there that will refer to the restoration of Jerusalem. There are several for that matter. Now, let's take that particular point. Why is Jerusalem so uh, mentioned so often and held up in such a great esteem by the prophet, actually by God through the prophet? All right. 
And that, of course, is because Jerusalem represents the city of God, represents where God has set up, you might say, a focal point of beginning and end. In other words, it is the city of redemption. But these people at this particular time, 7th and 8th century B.C., wouldn't have understood that. And therefore, those kind of words could not be used. That would be totally unheard of or totally uh, un, uh, understandable. That's poor grammar, but you know what I mean. So, that is why we have to repeat many things. The other thing when you're studying the prophets is that much of it is in poetic language. And I, for one, really don't care much for for poetry. Uh, Many people do, and that's fine. Um, I just never was accustomed to it and don't particularly care for it because you have to sit there and try to figure out what's this all about? What's it mean? Uh, What is the meaning, I should say? And that is because there is a great deal of symbolisms used in poetic language. And we have a great deal of that here. The other thing is, In Jewish writings, ancient Jewish writings, and I would assume writings from other nations of the time, they had no way to highlight important uh, events or important points. And therefore, they would either exaggerate a great deal or they would repeat sometimes two and three or more times. And that is, again a signal that this is an important point, and please take note. So, for us, in trying to figure out what does this all mean, we have to not be so concerned with individual words, but with stepping back and taking a look at what is the bigger picture? What is going on? What is God really trying to do here through these people? And that is why uh, what I would like to talk about this morning. Um, particularly when we talk about Babylon. Babylon uh, represents the epitome of degradation of um, imprisonment of falling to the lowest of the low, you might say. Uh, And it is used not only here, because they're really talking about history, in a sense, but it is used other places in the Bible, particularly in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation. Babylon is held out as being the epitome uh, of, you might say, equal with hell. All right. And as I've said before, Babylon, of course, does not exist any longer. And that is because, as God 
says through the prophets here, that every nation that has conquered or overpowered or vandalized uh, Israel or Judah in any way will be severely punished and most of them will no longer exist. And that is true. But we also must understand that God does not exempt his own people. In fact, all of this should be looked at from the point of view of the Jewish people, both in Israel and in Judah. Because this is what we're really talking about. The Israelite people, they weren't called Jews at this point in time, the Israelite people or the Hebrew people were God's instrument of implementing his plan of salvation. They were a nation that he developed virtually out of one family, Abraham. And it was a family that was supposed to develop into a nation who would be a sparkling jewel among nations. A sparkling jewel in the way of justice and peace and love among each other and also reflecting that to other nations so that other nations would see these loving people and they receive that particular love from their God and hopefully embellish or not embellish but absorb the teachings of the Jewish God into their own nation but this did not happen the Jewish people took this idea of being the chosen people to an extreme of personal interpretation that they were chosen by God God had promised in the covenant to protect them and therefore nothing could go wrong. They were going to be special and they didn't want to bother with anybody else except that they wanted to be like the other nations rather than the other way around rather than wanting the other nations to reflect their viewpoints. They would not share themselves with other nations. In fact, they went into the opposite direction of protecting themselves by being very exclusive and not allowing themselves as a nation to go out and intermingle with others. In fact, even at Jesus' time, that had not changed. 7,000 years, 700 years rather. Uh, had not changed, that it was virtually a sin or a crime against the God of Israel to dine with a Gentile. And yet, of course, Jesus did that several times, and he was always criticized for it. But that was the whole purpose. You don't convert people by shunning them or being 
uh, exclusive and avoiding them. You convert people by going out and being kind and helpful uh, and reflecting, you know, your high moral values. And yet this did not happen. And so God is punishing Israel and Judah by using these other nations who had their eyes, covetous eyes, you might say, on Israel and Judah, not because of uh, their religion or their beliefs or their lifestyle, but because of the material benefits that they could receive or get by conquering the Jewish people. Right. You had Jerusalem was a very prosperous prosperous area uh, because it served uh, the greater part of the eastern Mediterranean countries. Israel, the, the northern part, was very prosperous because it had the Silk Road that went right through it. And you had people coming all the way from China all the way to uh, Sidon and Tyre and Sidon uh, to board ships going even further east all the way over to Spain. So that is why these nations surrounding Israel and Judah were always having their eye to, towards conquering them so that they could gain control. So God would use these people, these Gentile nations, uh, to punish his own people. Now, you might say, well, that is awfully harsh. That is, you know, so ungodlike. Not really. Not really. Remember, all people, all mankind, are God's creation. And they were all intended to be God's loving people and eventually return to God in heaven. But because of sin and pride, this did not happen. And therefore God had to develop some form of plan. But over a period of time, a lot of it went wrong not because God uh, didn't do things right, because the people didn't do things right. And because of free will, God had to allow certain things to happen. If you think about it, the wiping out of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., uh, seemed to be very harsh. But remember, it's sort of a repeat of the Noah and the Ark story all over again. Or the Sodom and Gomorrah demise all over again. And those were God's plans also. When things didn't go wrong, I'm sorry, when things didn't go right, According to God's plan, he took control and would use whatever was available to correct the situation. 
the wiping out really of almost all of the Jewish people, either through the Assyrians or through the Babylonians, left all left a very small group, a small remnant, which is the phrase used, and it is a uh, very sacred phrase in Jewish liturgies even today. And this was a small group of people that came out of Babylon beginning around the year 539 B.C., not because of the Babylonians, but because uh, the Persians had then conquered the Babylonians. You see, you have this series of rise and fall of various nations. The Assyrians uh, rose out of uh, tribes, and they were conquered by the uh, Babylonians. The Babylonians were later conquered by the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians were conquered by the Greeks. And the Greeks were conquered by the Romans. You have this constant uh, turnover, you might say, of nations and so forth. And that is what's going on even today. You have nations that don't particularly like another nation, and they will overrun them for various reasons. And uh, it's not quite in the same way of... Uh, whole nations um, invading others and wiping them out and so forth. But the end result isn't much different. And this is part of God's action. In what he, then you might say, well, where do we come in? Why are we getting involved in this? Well, if you think about it, we certainly aren't a holy nation. Far from it. And in fact, we're sliding down the slippery slope uh, even more so. Constantly, our leaders are fighting to keep God out of the picture. And many people, because they feel, well, I'm just a single person. What can I do? Well, a lot of single persons banding together can do a great deal. I don't particularly admire the Tea Party uh, people in politics, but certainly this was a grassroots effort that really has taken hold and has really grabbed a very large portion of power. And therefore, you can see what a small group of people can do uh, if it's handled right for the right purpose, and if God is behind them, what they could do. And that's what we should be doing. But our nation is really falling apart morally. In fact, there was an article, I was going to bring it in, and I just forgot about it. There was uh, an article in the... Um, uh, there was an article in the paper just the other day that talked about somebody being... Um, arrested or apprehended in some way because they were offering a prayer before a city council meeting. And they said, well, you can't do that. And uh, the response was, well, this wasn't a Christian prayer. It was by a Wiccan priestess. 
And they said, well, you can't do that either. But you see, what is happening here is certain small groups of people on the negative side are squeezing the majority from any observance or recognition uh, of God. And we are really, in a, in a sense, going back to the same things that are happening here in the study of Isaiah. Things haven't changed a great deal in over 2,000 years. The selfishness of the human being when God is excluded seems to override the goodness of the majority. And that is the dilemma that we find ourselves in today. This whole fiasco that's gone on in Washington over the past two or three weeks really reflects a very selfish attitude on the group, on the, on the point of the side of a few people. Politics is supposed to be the art of compromise. And yet, in this case, the only thing that it is, really, is selfishness raising its ugly head to control the majority. And that's unfortunate. But that's why we study Isaiah and Scripture in general. Because if we don't change as individuals, then we will get swept up with the problems that go on. And therefore, we have to take a stand and say, where are we headed? We as individuals, each one of us must really stop and think about where am I headed with my heart and my soul? And how am I reflecting that through my actions and my speech? And if God stood in front of me today, how would I fare up? Uh, Assyria did, but no, Babylon, Babylon did not. No. That's right. And of course, when they took all of the people, Karen's question is, um, when Assyria conquered the northern uh, territories of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Babylon conquered uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, did they cart the people off to, Bab- uh, to the various places, Assyria and Babylon? The Assyrians did, yes. The Assyrians took all of the people that could do them some good. Not all, but you know, only those that could actually serve uh, them well in, in Assyria. All right? uh, and then they replaced them with all the people that they didn't want in Assyria. Those became the Samaritans of later on. Uh, that did not happen in Judah. All right. When the Babylonians conquered Judah in 587 BC, they did not, um, they took only the people again 
who could do them some good, but they left behind, you know, the crippled, the old, the infirm, and little children. Well, what happens when you take all of the people who are serving and building and, you know, teaching, etc., the country itself becomes uh, pretty much destroyed. In essence, yes. Now, they weren't slaves in the way we think of slaves. All right? They were more indentured servants, which for centuries was a common way of bondage. Indentured servants. And they probably had their own homes and set up things um, and lived reasonably well. I don't mean wealthy, but comfortable. Okay. They were just uh, legally the owners, uh, I mean, the property of their owners. Right. Any other questions? All right. Let's get into some various, uh, very important points that I'd like to go over in some of this. Now, it sounds again like we're repeating uh, some of the same stuff that was covered. For example, in chapter 21, uh, it's an oracle against Babylon. Well, that's almost a repeat of the one that we read in chapter 13. So we won't go into a lot of that. But again, Babylon was really looked upon as uh, the hell of uh, the earth, you might say. Not because it wasn't a great place. Remember, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon was one of the ancient uh, wonders of the world. Um, Babylon was a great city as far as appearance, uh, culture, uh, etc., etc. Right? Um, but when it conquered people, it devastated what was left behind. Okay. Let's go on. <clears throat> against Arabia uh, you had people that were eyeing Israel and Judah for other reasons from the south as well as I said Jerusalem served the south and they were looking upon Jerusalem also because of, their, of its uh, prosperity in the middle of the commentary on the near the bottom of page 60, is an important point that we should discuss. It says, this was an important message for the first readers of the book of Isaiah, that is against um, Arabia. <clears throat> Since Judah had no military power at all, and why did Judah not have military power? is because of the covenant that God had made through uh, David that, well, actually starting way back with Abraham, but then renewed over and over and over again, it contained a clause of protection. And God was going to protect Israel, particularly Jerusalem, if it remained faithful to that covenant. And yet it failed to do that over and over and over. It was Judah's commitment to justice 
that was decisive. In other words, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people of this time, lost sight of what God really wanted of them. And they turned against their own people. Anybody that was ill or infirm or uh, outcast of some reason was looked upon and shunned because it was thought that they were great sinners and this was God's punishment and therefore they could not uh, associate with them. And God over and over and over through the prophets um, particularly, but even when Jesus came, he tried to change the people's mind and heart uh, of this erroneous understanding and yet failed to do so because they did not want to do so. They felt that anybody that was very poor or was uh, physically incapacitated or crippled or handicapped in some way was so because they were great sinners and therefore they were shunned. Uh, and this became a tremendous uh, problem that God really tried to work with these people and they refused to listen. <clears throat> and that's why this particular statement here, it was Judah's commitment to justice that was decisive. It was not the Judahite state that would secure Jerusalem's future, but a community founded on a just uh, social and economic order, that is, taking care of the poor, uh, the widows, and the orphans. As I said uh, before, we have to constantly remember uh, that even in a wealthy family, if the head of the house died, everything was left to the firstborn son. And the firstborn son had the responsibility of carrying on and taking care of his mother if she was still living, <coughs> pardon me, and any siblings. But a lot of times they refused to do so. And therefore, widows and orphans, even though they may have come from a wealthy family, had no legal right, they had no recourse to gain a livelihood or to have somebody take care of them, and therefore they were thrown into the same category as the poor and destitute. And this is again one of the reasons uh, that people were severely punished. And now we go again with the oracle against uh, Jerusalem. Again, I'm staying away from reading the actual scripture because hopefully you've already read that. What I'm trying to do is to give you the meaning behind that scripture uh, because that is really what is important here. Now, if you have a particular passage that you want an explanation or, um, or are confused about, uh, let me know and we'll be glad to help you out. 
down at the bottom of uh, page 60. It says judgment, that is judgment against the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. I keep saying Jewish people. They were not called Jews at this time, but that's the way we, it's easier for us to remember them that way. All right. <clears throat> judgment was coming because the people of means, that is the wealthy of those who uh, had control or power, were guilty of conspicuous consumption. Seemingly unmoved by the prophet's warnings, that is, against their selfishness and the need uh, to take care of the widows, the poor, the orphans, etc. Mercenaries from Elam and Turo will turn the city's choicest valleys into highways for an invasion, and they did. Okay. Though the city will prepare itself for this invasion, these efforts will provide no real security <clears throat> because God is the one planning the city's judgment, as I've said before, while its foolish citizens are celebrating their apparent deliverance. Apparent deliverance. Jerusalem, however, will not escape judgment because it has not responded to the prophet's call for justice. And we have to think about that today in our own individual cases and lives. Okay. Here's a kind of interesting story which you can read more about um, in the second book of Kings, but against Shibna and Eliakim. The prophets lay the blame for Jerusalem's folly on its leaders for the most part. Here he singles out two royal counselors for particular criticism. So we're not only talking about nations, but we're talking about individuals as well. Shibna and King Hezekiah's chief of staff, or was King Hezekiah's chief of staff. Isaiah saw the impressive tomb that Shibna was preparing for himself. This prompted the prophet to speak about Shibna's certain fall from power. He, Jebna, likely advised Hezekiah to become involved in the anti-Assyrian revolt led by Ashdod. Ashdod was a city uh, in Judah, okay, on the coast. Fortunately for Judah, Hezekiah did not take Shebna's advice and demoted him. His place as chief of staff was taken up by Eliakim. Isaiah expected great things from Eliakim, though he too proved to be a disappointment. Those in a position to bring significant change to Judahite society or to American society did nothing to disrupt the economic status quo. Okay. And that is, you know, we can say, woe is me, woe is me. I don't like what's going on, but if you don't lift a finger to help, then you're part of the problem, not the solution. They believe that their political and military maneuvering would provide Judah with security. They didn't have any military power whatsoever, as it said earlier. One goal of the prophet's mission 
was to convince Judah of just the opposite. That it didn't have any power, that it should rely on God and fulfill God's wishes of them. Remember, you can pray from morning till night, 24-7, to God for various causes. Whether they're good or not is immaterial at this point. But if you are not acting in accordance with God wants out of you, then why should he answer and fulfill your prayer request? So many people, and I've heard this over and over over the years, say, well, I prayed for this, thus, and so uh, for days or weeks or whatever, and I get nothing. I get no response. Therefore, why should I bother? And my only response to them is, how have you acted in the meantime? How have you responded to what God wants of you? Or have you even asked God, what does he want of you? And that is something that we should be doing daily. Lord, help me to know and to fulfill what it is you want of me today. Or this week, or whatever. I want to go on to chapter 24. Chapters 24 through 27 are often referred to as the Apocalypse of Isaiah. Now, the word Apocalypse does not mean gloom and doom, as most people think it is. Or it has become to be interpreted in uh, much of today's usage. The word Apocalypse is a Greek word that means revealing or revelation to look at something in a different way however as I've said before in the usage here in scripture the word apocalypse generally is used uh, when talking about something that has to be uh, somewhat disguised. And so they use different words because it generally is so calamitous uh, that most people would not read it and therefore shun not only the words, but more so the message. For example... If we go over to chapter 24, verse 5. The earth is polluted because of its inhabitants. Well, that's not a very pleasant word. For they have transgressed laws, violated statutes, and broken the ancient covenant. Well, gee, that's kind of a friendly beginning, isn't it? But that is what happened. We're talking now about the Jewish or the Hebrew people. Going back to verse 1, it says, 
See, the Lord is about to empty the earth and lay it waste. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. People and priests shall fare up alike. Servant and master, maid and mistress, buyer and seller, lender and borrower, creditor and debtor. Why don't they just say, well, everybody. But this is a poem, okay? Might not be uh, Mary had a little lamb or anything like that, but it is a poem of um, danger, of warning. And it includes everybody. So it uses poetic language here, and sometimes it will exaggerate. It says, the earth is polluted because of its inhabitants. Well, that's an exaggeration of words, but it is used here to emphasize a very important point. It says, therefore, I'm going to verse 6, therefore a curse devours the earth. Well, devours, we always think of gobbling up. Well, that's not exactly what's happening, except in a moral sense. And its inhabitants pay for their guilt. Yes, they will. Therefore, they who dwell on earth have dwindled, and only a few are left. Well, not yet, but soon to be. The new wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted groan. Stilled are the cheerful timbrels. Ended the shouts of the jubilant. Stilled the cheerful harp. They no longer drink wine and sing. Strong brew is bitter to those who drink it. Quite often, we will read that same kind of thing in the book of Revelation, which again talks about not so much the end of the world, but the end of the Roman Empire's control over the Christians. So you've got to kind of keep in mind, exaggeration needs to be boiled down to specifics. Okay. At the bottom of page 65, there's an important point that should be mentioned here. Uh, it actually starts with the last line on 64. Still, the prophet's pessimism is not total. While he speaks about the desolation that comes with divine judgment upon a world without justice, he does hope for a decisive manifestation of divine power that will remake the world into a place where justice triumphs. Well, remake the world. Didn't that happen uh, at the end of Noah's 40 days and 40 nights in the ark? You know, he sort of used his family to regenerate the earth. We have the same thing happening with the small remnant of uh, exiles who returned from Babylon to do the same thing. And there are other incidents um, in biblical history. For example, let's see. He does not hope for a decisive manifestation of divine power that will remake the world into a place where justice triumphs. Readers will be tempted to find precise reference for the nonspecific images 
that these chapters contain. For example, is the city that the prophet mentions, whether it be Babylon, Nineveh, Jerusalem, or Samaria, could be any one of them, really. But the most plausible answer is that the city is any city and every city founded on injustice and oppression. The nonspecific character of the prophet's words disengages them from a particular time and places and makes their appropriation um, by readers today. On the other hand, the vague generalities of these chapters, 24 through 27, on the vague... <coughs> other hand, the big generalities of these chapters challenge the reader's attention as the prophet tries to draw a picture of what lies ahead, not simply for Babylon, Jerusalem, Egypt, and so forth, but for the whole world. And therefore, the message of the prophet Isaiah out of the 7th century B.C. applies to us just as much today as it did at that time. Down at the bottom, or the middle, or about two thirds, or two thirds of the way down on page 66 here, says the prophet gives no specific reason for this universal judgment, except for, and underlying this one, universal disobedience. Only a few people will survive. If you go to the book of Revelation it talks about the 144,000. This is often referred to and connected back here about the few people surviving. Now, that is not a specific figure, although there is a Protestant denomination that says it is, and that they are part of that 144,000, obviously. <clears throat> but uh, that is actually of 12,000 times 12,000. The 12 being a universal complete number in Jewish history and when multiplied by itself means infinity. That's in the book of Revelation. Now, we have a prayer of thanksgiving. Chapter 25 O Lord, you are my God. I extol you. I praise your name. For you have carried out your wondrous plans of old. Faithful and true. Plans. What are these plans? Right. God's plan of salvation is being carried out. One plan. The same plan that he had at the time of creation. And it will exist until fully completed at the last judgment. Okay. For you have made the city, 
And that's what we said before. It is not just any specific city, but really the whole world. A heap, the fortified city, a ruin, the castle of the insolent, a city no more, not even to be rebuilt. And that's important in a way, not even to be rebuilt. Remember, the temple at Jerusalem was destroyed again in the year 70 AD, never to be rebuilt, because it was a sign of God's presence among the Hebrew or the Jewish people. And once they rejected Christ, God standing before them in the form of Jesus Christ, God said, no more. The first covenant was then made null and void, signified by the destruction of the temple and the Holy of Holies, never to be rebuilt. And that is a sign several times. Babylon was never rebuilt. The three cities that Jesus mentions, uh, I believe it's in Luke's Gospel, uh, Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida, never to be rebuilt because they were against God and his plan. Therefore, a strong people will honor you. Ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge to the needy in their distress. Shelter from the rain, shade from the heat. When the blast of the ruthless was like a winter rain, the roar of strangers like heat in the desert, you subdued the heat with the shade of a cloud and rain uh, of the tyrants was vanquished. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will provide for all people a feast of rich food and choice wines, rich juice foods and pure choice wines. This is always a sign of God's love. Uh, we often hear about the divine or heavenly banquet. Uh, it's a sign of God's love. Remember, these people did not eat and drink like we do today. Uh, they did not have meat every day. They did not have wine every day. Even though we were led to believe that, that is not quite the way they lived because things were not available as easily as they are today. And therefore, in biblical writings, ancient Jewish Hebrew writings, the sign of a banquet is always a sign of God's love for them. <clears throat> On this mountain, he will destroy the veil that veils all peoples. And again, this is in reference to the veil of the temple that was destroyed uh, on the first Good Friday. The web that is woven over all nations, he will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will be removed from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. On that day it will be said, Indeed, this is our God. We look to him, and he saved us. This is the Lord to whom we look 
Let us rejoice and be glad that he has saved us. Throughout this book, you will see that even though the prophet talks about gloom and doom for all of their injustice and waywardness against God's law, there is always a carrot, you might say, a loving hand held out by God to welcome these people back. He punishes, but very rarely does he destroy. And that is a sign of God's infinite love, and it should be a sign of hope for us that whether we have been wrong uh, in a ser- serious way, that we always have um, a loving God that will accept us back provided that we are willing to change our ways and follow him. In the, about two-thirds down on the page 67 is a, a point that is interesting. In this prayer of thanksgiving, it says, The enemy came upon Israel as an east wind. Sometimes you see, well, this is of course in a, in a desert area, and the east wind was really the Assyrians, okay? The east wind it represents or is used here to indicate the Assyrians off of the desert from the northeast, whose withering heat brings crop failure, famine, and starvation in its wake, right? Uh, This is not the only time that an east wind uh, of various kinds has struck the Mideast. At the time of Elijah, as a form of punishment, God stopped the rains for three and a half years as a sign of his power and to get these people's attention. We're going back now to the ninth century B.C. But nevertheless, these things have happened over and over as part of God's way of getting the people's attention uh, severely. Okay. On 26, we have a similar uh, prayer, you might say. Judas prays and prayer for deliverance. On that day, this song shall be sung in the land of Judah. A strong city have we. He sets up victory as our walls and ramparts. Open up the gates that a righteous nation may enter. One that keeps faith. With firm purpose you maintain peace. In peace because of your trust, of our trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is an eternal rock. He humbles those who dwell on high. The lofty city he brings down, etc., etc. It goes on. What I want to do is read some of the explanation here. Page 68. 
says, what is significant about this passage is its assertion that all nations will share in that banquet since God will lift the veil that obscures the vision of the nations, bringing an end to that which keeps Israel and the nations apart. The veil that obscures the vision of the nations. All right. And that is the lack of justice, the lack of love, of neighborly love, has set up, uh, you might say, an iron curtain or a veil between nations. And this selfishness has divided people against people. And part of this is to indicate that if they follow God's law, that will change. Bringing an end to that which keeps Israel and the nations apart. They will recognize Israel as God's people. It will be as if death itself were overcome. Here the prophet's words have a double meaning that escapes most readers. The Canaanite god of the underworld was Mok, whose name is the Hebrew word for death. Mot was locked in a continuous battle with Baal, the god of fertility. When the prophets asserts that the Lord will destroy death forever, he implies that in a new age there will be no lack of fertility. Hunger will no longer be a threat. People will not have to eat sparingly. This next, uh, this text does not imply that the dead will rise. What it does suggest is that God will make life worth living. Israel will be able to acclaim its God as Savior since it is only by the power of God that all of this has happened. It is God's doing. Okay. But you have to kind of wade through the poetic language really to understand all of that. Well, Anna is having trouble with accepting um, this particular passage here, particularly where it talks about the Canaanite god of the underworld. Um, again, we've got to remember exaggeration. Okay? Exaggeration being used here. And in many cases, God is not, or the, the prophet is not implying any kind of allegiance or loyalty to this God. What he's saying here is that they're taking some of the pagan gods and using them to make a point, you might say. And that, that's true in many ways. Uh, God has used uh, pagan nations against Israel to make a point. And so you have the same kind of thing. In this case, they're using pagan gods. Uh, anyone else have a question or a problem? Let's go over <coughs> to page 70. And on to 71 here. 
at the bottom of page 70, says, though the prophet is confident about Judah's future, his attention is drawn to the dire military and political circumstances that it faces. There is death all around, but soon God will reverse Judah's fortunes by destroying those nations and, I'm asserting here, and those foreign gods or pagan gods as well, destroy them. <clears throat> but God will reverse Judah's fortunes by destroying those nations allied against it, giving advice reminiscent of the story of the first Passover. Remember in the story of the first Passover, uh, there were ten plagues, and it wasn't until the last plague, the slaughter of the firstborn, did Pharaoh finally get the message and allow the Israelites to leave Egypt. And so sometimes God goes to morbid extremes really to take control of a situation. To express his confidence in God's victory over every evil power, the prophet uses imagery that was ancient but never loses its power to move people. The Canaanites envisioned the creation of the world as following the defeat of a great sea monster that the prophet calls Leviathan. While the Canaanites believed that the device, uh, that, excuse me, that the decisive defeat of Leviathan took place in the past, leading to the creation of this world, the prophet asserts that this battle has yet to take place. However, he is certain that God will be victorious, and hundreds of years later, the book of Revelation uses similar imagery of a monster from the sea to speak of God's final victory over the power of evil. The word or the, uh, the whole idea of the Leviathan is used quite prominently in a certain passage within the book of Revelation. The Lord's Vineyard. The productivity of the vineyard will run dry, really, uh, until all of these things have happened. <clears throat> this is a rather short chapter, and I'd like to go over it, really. Again, you have to wade through some of the poetic language to really understand what is being said here. On that day... The Lord will punish with his sword that is cruel, great, and strong. Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the coiled serpent. He will slay the dragon in the sea. On that day, the pleasant vineyard. Sing about it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment. Lest anyone harm it night and day I guard it. I am not angry. But if I were to find briars and thorns, in battle I would march against it. I would burn it all. But if it holds fast to my refuge, it shall have peace with me. It shall have peace with me. In other words, 
if it holds fast to my refuge, if it holds fast to my teachings, then it will be saved. And that is really true uh, to the people, to us today. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Jacob is used here uh, really to mean Judah. Okay? Remember, Judah was one of Jacob's sons. And Jacob is always used uh, in a way to show God's love for this particular person as well as in his inheritance or his um, descendants and in that particular place where Jerusalem sits. Okay. <clears throat> oh, I lost my place. Okay, thank you. In the days to come, Judah shall take root. Israel shall sprout and blossom. Now, Judah and Israel are really the same place. Covering all the world with fruit. Was he smitten as his smiter was smitten? Was he slain as his slayer was slain? Driving out and compelling, he struggled against it. Carrying it off with his cruel wind on a day of storm. This, then, shall be the expiation of Jacob's guilt. This is the result of removing his sin. He shall pulverize all the stones of the altar like pieces of chalk. No Asherahs or incense. All Asherahs were pillars that were used uh, in pagan adorations. For the fortified city shall be desolate and abandoned pasture, a forsaken wilderness. Their calves shall graze. There they shall lie down and consume its branches. When its boughs wither, they shall be broken off, and women shall come to kindle fire with them. For this is not an understanding people, and therefore their maker shall not uh, spare them. Their maker shall not spare them. That is God himself. Their creator shall not be gracious to them. On that day the Lord shall beat out again from the channel of the Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt. Now, we all know that the Euphrates is a major river. still exists. The wadi is a uh, stream, a smaller stream, presumably in this case the Nile. And you shall be gleaned one by one, children of Israel, On that day, a great trumpet shall blow, and the lost in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt shall come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Amen. Amen. Any questions? You see, again, you have to wade through a lot of poetic language, and therefore it's more important that you step back and try to understand through the use of the uh, writer's commentary what is really going on. Uh, But we have covered the most part. Now, as I said before, much of this 
portion of the book of First Isaiah, from chapters 13 through 27, were written long afterward and reinserted in this particular place. We are not certain as to why, but in some ways it, it seems to fit. Um, we don't know who reinserted it, and that is not that important. But now we are going to return to uh, what first Isaiah really wrote when we begin and pick up next week at chapter 28. Uh, But we go back really to some of the same things. Judah's judgment and salvation. But I think you'll find this a little easier and a little more appealing uh, to understand and accept. How have you people uh, accepted a chat? You had a question? Whatever is convenient within your means and circumstances. But more importantly, and Chet's question is, how far should any one individual or country go to alleviate the poor? And to some degree, the widows and orphans. Well, in the United States, widows and orphans, uh, that has really been covered pretty much legally and changed. The custom here is a lot different uh, than it was back in the 7th century B.C. as far as widows and orphans are concerned because they uh, can legally own property, etc. But the poor, Christ himself tells us that the poor will always be with us uh, for a variety of reasons. So to eliminate... Uh, poverty is something that's virtually impossible. The thing that we have to do is on a daily basis ask God, what are you expecting out of me? Each one of you should ask God that in prayer. And I hope in that you are all spending some time in private prayer. Because without that, you will never be able to understand and apply what you're learning here. All of the (coughs) understanding the education in the world is not going to do you any good if you don't pray. But in that prayer, you should ask God constantly, every day, Lord, what is it that you are expecting of me today? And that will help you as an individual answer your own question. What can I do to alleviate the poverty that I see around me? 
Now that doesn't mean you have to go up and down. I used to work uh, just off of Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. And you have a lot of professional uh, beggars. When I say professional beggars, you know, they're day, they're there day after day in the same spot uh, doing really the same thing. And after years of seeing the same person in the same spot, you begin to wonder, you know. Uh, didn't take years to wonder, but you know what I mean. Okay? Uh, so you're not going to alleviate all of that. But God is going to ask you something of you, something within your current situation, wherever you are now. He's not going to tell you to step way out of your comfort zone and do something totally unusual. That may happen over a period of time, but not in one big fell swoop. But whenever you see somebody in need, don't just automatically go and try to solve his problem or her problem. Ask God first, Lord, how can I help this person within the limits of my existence, my situation, and your holy will? And that will really take care of it. You can't be responsible for the whole world or for the whole city. But each one of us has not only the obligation, but the duty to help some way. Even if it's just in praying for people. Amen. Yes, Cora said that we each have a place in God's plan. And we have to find out what that is. And we do that through prayer. Uh, each one of us has an obligation to serve in some way. Okay. Let us end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for permitting us to share some time in really understanding or trying to better understand Holy Scripture, the prophet Isaiah in particular is not easy. We thank you for so many graces and blessings. We ask your help as we go forward in continuing our study to open our minds and our hearts to what it is that you want of each of us as individuals. And we know that when we begin to respond that you will take care of us and that you will furnish us with the peace and the grace that comes as part of your love. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.